You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Maybe seated. Wow, there's a lot of people way back there. Some of you I don't know, and if uh, you have time, I'd love to shake your hand and meet you after after the service. Um, yeah, it has been a year since we've been here. In the midst of a pandemic, my family was called to Sun Prairie, Wisconsin to, to uh, serve at Christ Fellowship there. And, uh, but we're, we're very excited to be here this morning. It's been, it's been a joy thinking about coming and, and, and preaching here. You know, I stole the old pul- pulpit that was here. <laughs> well, I didn't steal it. Jason gave it to me. But I've never preached behind this one. It's nice. So great job, Dana. Um, I am honored that Jason asked me to come back and and preach here. Um, It's good to be here. You know, in 2014, the Lord brought a Tennessee boy to Minnesota. And and we fell in love with the Midwest, um, primarily because of the people here at Redeemer Bible Church. We fell in love with the people in the Midwest because of you. And I'm so thankful. So thankful for that. And then, last year, um, the Lord called this Minnesee boy to Wisconsin in the land of cheese and beer. It's been interesting. Um, but it's been good in the midst of a global pandemic. We re- rejoice in the Lord and what he's done. I want to ask you this morning, what's the most important thing in your life, and I know we're in church, and so you're obviously, you're going to think of that Sunday school answer, right? But what matters the most? What, what does your life hinge upon? If it were lost and you were devastated, what is that thing? What is that concept? What is that job? What is that loved one? What is that trinket? What is it? What matters the most? Today we're going to continue in this series called Risen, looking at 1 Corinthians 15. And in this chapter, Paul is saying that the central thing that matters for us is the resurrection of Jesus. That's what matters. It's central to the gospel. It's what matters most for you. It's what matters most for me. And as we look at the passage today, verses 12 through 34, Paul continues to argue that the point, that that the resurrection is central and most important. Now, some within the Corinthian congregation were denying that the resurrection would happen. Some denied the resurrection. The apostle Paul explains the absurdity of this conclusion. How absurd it was to deny the resurrection. And he reinforced, reinforced this point. Without the resurrection, the gospel, the entire good news of Jesus Christ is utterly pointless. Without the resurrection, the gospel is utterly pointless and all is lost. Read with me as we look at the word of God. Chapter 15, verses 12 through 34. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life, only we are a, of all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under his feet, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of God. We pray. Father, thank you. Help us now. We pray in your name. Amen. This morning, as we look at Paul's argument, my prayer is that you walk away, you walk away with an understanding about why the resurrection matters, why it matters for you, why it matters for your existence, your life, all of it is drastically affected by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you're in this room as a Christian or not, your life is dramatically affected by the resurrection. For believers, it's, it's our hope. It's the power of the glory of God displayed in the risen king. Death defeated. Grave overthrown. The son glorified. Your promise, believer, of redemption of redemption and eternal joy with God rests in Christ's resurrection. For non-believers, frankly, friend, it's your only hope. It's not Obi-Wan Kenobi. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is your only hope. God's answer and solution for what is wrong in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the sin and brokenness that is so easily perceptible. We see it all out there. It's so easy to see out there. But isn't it true it's also easy to see in here? 
We stare at ourselves in the mirror. God has provided an answer, a remedy for the malady of your soul's sickness. It is the gospel. And if you're here today, I am so glad you're here. I am so glad you're here. This morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34, I'm praying that this will drive home this, this point. This is the main point of application for the sermon today. Christian, you can rest and rejoice because your faith your redemption, your eternity has been secured by the history and the reality of Christ's resurrection. Amen. You can rest, Christian, and you can rejoice, Christian, because your faith, your redemption, your security, and your eternity has been secured by the history and reality of Christ Jesus resurrecting from the grave. And that's the most important thing that matters for you. So let's jump in. Buckle up, buttercup. Here we go. There's three, three main ideas that are, are going to shape our outline today. So if you're taking notes, this is our outline. It's going to come right out of what Paul says in the text. Three main ideas. Paul's argument in this section of his correspondence with the church at Corinth, he, he talks about in regards to the resurrection, what is lost, what is gained, and then what's at stake. Okay? What is lost, what is gained, and what's at stake. Let's look at what is lost. Now, verses 1 through 11, Jason Harrison preached that last week, did an amazing job of that. And, and one of the things he highlighted was that Paul's saying, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, what happened? Well, Jesus died, was buried, rose, and appeared. So there's, there's historicity, there's eyewitness accounts, there's a testimony of multiple people seeing the risen Lord Jesus. And this all happened according to the scriptures. He says, for I delivered to you, verse 3, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. A first importance. That means it's important. It's important. But then when we come to verse 12 in our passage today, we understand kind of why he emphasized that. Why was he, why was he taking pains to show them how important the gospel is? What was he doing? Why was he doing that? Well, it's because there were some in Corinth in the church at Corinth, there are some among them within the church who denied the resurrection. They were denying the resurrection. Verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Paul poses this question with incredulity. He's kind of astonished. Right? Paul's asking a how's it that? You know what a how's it that is? How's it that? That's something that was said to me all my childhood. Son, how's it that I told you not to do thus and such, but here you are doing thus and such? Upon the occasion that someone breaks with fundamental reality, right? They ask, how's it that? How's it that so? How, how's that well, the way it is? How's it that this new math is telling people how to do math? Two plus two is seven. Paul asked the Corinthians that the gospel I preach to you has a first importance to the resurrection. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, that's the gospel in which you stand, the gospel which I preach to you. How is it that some of you are denying the resurrection? Fundamental to rock music is the guitar. That's not up for debate. That's just how it is. Fundamental 
to American football, to baseball, to soccer. Fundamental to all those things is the ball. Fundamental to the gospel is the reality of the resurrection. See, groups within the church at Corinth, groups within the church had been influenced from their own cultural baggage and history. The Corinthian church was birthed in the midst of a Greco-Roman culture that could not contemplate the idea of a resurrection. The whole idea of a bodily resurrection was foreign to their worldview. N.T. Wright comments, he says, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known to be false. Many believe the dead were non-existent. Outside Judaism, nobody believed in the resurrection. Everybody knew dead people didn't and couldn't come back to bodily life. See, the gospel asserted something supernatural had taken place that was foreign to their worldview. Totally foreign to their worldview. Philosophers of the day couldn't, couldn't conceive of this idea and they thought it foolishness. See, among the Corinthians were those who had said yes and amen to the gospel. They, they said, yes, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, but I don't believe that there's going to be a bodily resurrection for everybody else. They couldn't break free from their previous presuppositions. But see here, Paul bends in earnest because he wants them to see how they are freed in the gospel. They're freed in the gospel. The gospel has set them free. In the verses that follow, Paul works to upend any denial of the resurrection of the dead. The apostle is going to take aim at the claim that there's no resurrection. And what he does, first, he says, what's lost without the resurrection? Well, first is Jesus. Jesus, verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. See, Jesus has been raised. Jason last week talked about the, the perfect tense there. There's something that happened in the past that continues into the future. It's the same, same tense of the verb we see in verse 13. Not even Christ has been raised. But see, here's the deal. Christ has been raised. The gospel teaches that he was raised. He lives. He is alive. And he is now at the right hand of God interceding for you, Christian. Paul says if there's no resurrection, then, then Jesus wasn't raised. And then verse 14, if, if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. What's lost without the resurrection? The gospel. What's lost without the resurrection? Your faith. There's no one, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, there's no reason to put your hope in him for the work that he accomplished because guess what? He didn't accomplish any work. If Jesus wasn't raised. No message can provide you hope because if Christ didn't rise, he's no longer the person you'd, who did a substitutionary work in your place that you can trust and put your faith in. What's lost without the resurrection? Gospel witness, if, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then those who claimed he did were bearing false witness against God. They were breaking one of the 10, bearing false witness and testimony Verse 15, he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Now, for one who knew the word, that's the last thing he wanted to do was misrepresent God. He says, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it's true, 
that the dead are not raised. But you know what is most painful? What's lost with the re- without the resurrection? You are. Christian, if there's no resurrection, if Christ didn't raise, you're lost. We are all lost. Look at verse 16. Paul repeats himself. He says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Without the resurrection, we're lost. Faith is futile. We remain in sin. So what's lost with, without the resurrection? Well, life and hope in eternity. Those who have passed on, who believed in Christ, Paul says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're no more. It doesn't matter what they believed. They're dead. Dead and condemned. Paul says, then if, if in this If in in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are all of people most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, the perspective of the world of us rings true, doesn't it? Ignorant, pathetic, pitiful people. Without the resurrection, all would be lost. And the world in which we live remains in darkness without any glimmer of hope. I've had the privilege in ministry to, to officiate and serve at many funerals. Many of whom I love and whose faith, when, faith, when faced with death, challenged my own face my own faith when faced with health. Even from this place and this pulpit, I've done so. And it's my conviction that those messages are the most needed for my heart. And frankly, the most needed for your heart. For it's been my experience in ministry and at times true of myself that often the resurrection itself is lost on us. At times, it's not until the passing of a loved one that stirs up us to consider eternity or, or perhaps during the Easter season or your Bible study when it takes you through 1 Corinthians 15 or when your pastors decide to do a sermon series called Risen. So much of our lives we try to do in our own power from work to play to sleep to run to plan to save to hurry up and wait to hear there and everywhere in that spin we're clouded and we forget. We forget that there's a power. There's a power that we're a part of and that we participate in because Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. Unrest and sorrow of life, the hurry and blurry is a tactic of the devil to keep us forgetful and cloudy, is it not? But we are recipients, aren't we? Christian, we're recipients, aren't we? We have received the fulfillment of the promises. Death and the grave were defeated in Christ, and and now he lives. And so may it be that that this world and all the 
schemes of the devil do not blind us and cloud us and make the resurrection be lost on us because we are resurrection people. We know that the resurrection is a reality. It's a reality. The gospel proclaims Christ was raised. It's a reality for us. And in regard to this, Paul now turns, okay, that's what was lost without it. Here's what's gained with it. Point number two. Verse 20. The apostle turns from the negative consequences of no resurrection to the real results of the resurrection accomplished by Jesus. Verse 20. But in fact, I love that. But in fact. It's a true statement. You bet your bottom dollar. You can take it to the bank. But in fact. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. See, the gospel narrative, the story of redemption, is portrayed and displayed and presented and given so that you might receive it. All the way back in Genesis 1, the story of redemption begins. God made all things and he made them good. The pinnacle of his creation was Man and woman made after his own image in the image of God, he made them. Adam and Eve in the garden, given dominion in relationship, perfect relationship with God. But then the bad news, what happens? Genesis 3. Genesis 3, after the tempting of the serpent, our progenitors fall, tempted. They choose to disobey God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible says at that moment in history, their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. They came to see themselves in relationship to a holy God. They came to know good and evil. It was good of us to obey God and not eat from the tree he told us not to eat of, but we did evil. We sinned against God and we ate of the tree he told us not to eat of. By Adam's choice, sin and death were brought into the world. And when you turn to Genesis 5, there's this painful and sorrowful cadence that echoes through the chapter. Every generation of Adam you read and it says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Sin brought forth death. And so Paul holds up this this picture and he says, for As in Adam all die, verse 22, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Something has happened that God has done that has radically changed that cadence and that song. A biblical anthropology understands this essential teaching of Paul. There are two representatives of humanity, Adam and Christ, two statuses. Without Christ, People are by nature united with Adam, enslaved to sin under God's wrath and bound to an eternal death. But in Christ, by grace, through faith, believers come into fellowship with Jesus and are united to him in righteousness and the eternal resurrection life. Paul explained to the Corinthians that Jesus Christ was the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. Christ represents the fulfillment of Old Testament sacrifices and offerings. Jesus is the first fruits. In Leviticus 23, God said, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, verse 10, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On that, 
On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheath, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. So the priest receives the sheath. He waves the sheath as a first fruit of the harvest. It's, it's the wave offering of praise. It's a praise offering. And then following this, the lamb was offered, a burnt offering. It was only after this that the people could participate in the harvest. The first fruit was dedicated and it served as a deposit of God's blessings on the rest of the harvest. Jesus Christ, friend, is the first fruits of the harvest of our redemption. Old Testament sacrifice only served to point God's people forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God who would take away every sin of the world. Paul, Paul Gardner writes this. He says, the term first fruits is full of meaning. Christ is the first fruits offering to God to whom alone glory is due. He is first in order and the full harvest will follow. And perhaps he is the unblemished lamb who accompanies the first fruits offering as an atonement offering, dealing with sin. This is the Christ who has been raised by God from the dead and who is subject and in, in, in the content of the gospel. What's gained with the resurrection? Your resurrection, Christian. Your resurrection is gained. At verse 23, Paul deals with the order of the resurrection of believers that the resurrection of Jesus has established and procured. Paul says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and every power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, Paul explains that Christ is the first. He's the foretaste. This then provides the way for us, the guarantee of our resurrection, believer. The guarantee of our resurrection. And, you know, in theology, there's, there is the study of eschatology. Eschatology is the big fancy word for the study of last things. When we talk about eschatology, we're talking about what the Bible says about eschatology. With all that the Bible says regarding the end times, there are multiple perspectives on how it all shakes out. And many people smarter than I have am, uh, have debated this thing and these things. And so if you have any questions about that, you can go see your pastors. I'm a guest after all. <laughs> but what cannot be missed in our study of 1 Corinthians here, 1 Corinthians 15 what cannot be missed is how it applies to our experience of life and the reality that you and I have a personal eschatology. We all have a personal eschatology. We're all going to face the moment when our mortality and the reality of immortality meet. You have a personal eschatology at a personal end. And friend, I want you to be ready for that end. We want to be ready to die. It's in that moment that we find that the reality of the resurrection, it matters. It matters for us, and it secures the promise of our future hope in Christ. Believer, notice what Paul said to the Corinthians and what's gained from the resurrection. When the king comes, all his enemies are defeated. Isn't that a good thing? That's a good thing. All the enemies are defeated. All of the enemies of God and God's people are defeated. The last enemy to be defeated is death. 
Death is crushed when the king comes. All things will be redeemed and the restoration of God's right and good sovereign rule over all things will be at hand and will come to pass and we'll get to enjoy that eternity forever. Praise the Lord. What's gained in the resurrection? Why does it matter that Jesus was raised at the return of Christ, our risen Savior? We will be resurrected as he is resurrected. When Jesus the King returns, everything is crushed and we'll be able to delight in the presence of God to experience the fullness of his glorious love forevermore. Christian, don't you long for that day? Do you not long for that day? You can rest and rejoice. God, through the resurrection of Christ, has secured it. The apostle Peter, he said it this way. 1 Peter 1, 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The gospel describes for all of us what is gained for the believer because of the resurrection of Jesus. What's gained? This thing keeps jumping off my head. Paul wanted the Corinthians to understand this. He wanted the Corinthians to understand this. If they were to deny the resurrection, they would deny all that is gained through Jesus' messianic work on their behalf. And even to that end, they would deny the result of God's sovereign rule over all things that it was pushing, that's being pushed forward to. In regard to the resurrection, so much would be lost without it, but because of it, so much is gained, believer. So much is gained. And so this brings us to our final point. What's at stake? What's at stake? Paul looks at the denial of the resurrection in relationship to human experience in a couple of areas. First, the experience of the Corinthians and his own experience of ministry. For the Corinthians, Paul addresses, man, I'll get it here. There we go. For the Corinthians, my head's just too big. That's the problem. For the Corinthians, Paul addresses the experience of baptism. Verse 29, he writes, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, verse 29 is a difficult verse. And again, I'd point you to your pastors for the interpretation. But, but seriously, there, there, lots of interpretations since the early church fathers. There's various views of what Paul might mean. Is he talking about a vicarious baptism where people are being baptized on behalf of the dead and in their place? Or is he talking about people being moved to convert to Jesus because other people who had already passed on were baptized and converted to Jesus? It leaves us with a question mark, but, but I would have to say, as you think about all of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with lots of errors in 1 Corinthians. And if this was an error, some kind of error of baptism practice that was in conflict with the gospel, I think he would probably put the hammer down on it right here. Don't you? I mean, I could be wrong. But the idea is, is he's pointing to this main point, which is what we want to emphasize. What's at stake is if there's no resurrection, then Christian life and practice doesn't matter. Why baptize anybody? If the resurrection didn't happen, why would you baptize anybody? Why does that make sense? There's no point 
Why do that? If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, and we who are symbolically, as we confess and profess our, our faith in Jesus, when we are symbolically buried with Jesus in his death, immersed in the waters, and then raised from the waters, symbolizing our union with him, with Christ in his resurrection, if there's no resurrection, then we might as well stay underwater. Because he didn't raise. And that's just a picture of our end then, isn't it? If there's no resurrection, why do that? Why practice Christianity? Further, Paul says, what's the point of Christian ministry? He says in verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, that the dead are not raised? Then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul says, my life and ministry the sacrifice of my life to, to point people to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. Why would, I, why would I put myself through that if there's no resurrection? If there's no resurrection, what's the point? And that's Paul's point. If there's no resurrection, the gospel's at stake, and the ministry and practice of Christianity would be utter nonsense. There was no reason for us to get up this morning. There was no reason for us to sing all these songs. There's no reason for us to be here. There's no reason for us to participate in the table. If there's no resurrection, it's all pointless, right? That's the logic, you see. But friends, hallelujah, Christ was raised. And all of this matters. Life and death, kids, life and death every day matters. The gospel that proclaims the resurrection of Jesus matters for the salvation of your soul. Without it, you're under the wrath of God and you remain in your sins. You need this gospel, children. Parents, you need to earnestly urge your children that they need this gospel, that they need to know and believe that Christ on the third day was raised, that Easter isn't about bunnies and chocolate treats. It's about the resurrection of Jesus. Although Reese's eggs are really good. It's about the resurrection, friends. You look in verse 33. The resurrection happened. The gospel is true. And now Paul said, believer, wake up. You who are denying the gospel, wake up. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul wrote that the company some of the Corinthians were keeping was contributing to their corruption. They have no knowledge of God. And friends, I, I just want to say very plainly, there's a difference between gospel engagement with non-believers and gospel-less engagement with non-believers. And it may be helpful just to consider that. There's a difference if you're engaging in gospel life and ministry to non-believers, with non-believers, doing life in your neighborhood and your workplaces with them. And there's a difference between you just being there and not being a representative of the gospel. Does that make sense? If life and death is on the line, then people are perishing without the gospel. They'll perish. They won't experience the resurrection. 
The reality of the resurrection of Jesus points gospel pilgrims to his return, and so we should be pointing other people to his return. 1 John 2, 28 says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. In light of the resurrection, Paul's urging people to be on ministry for the gospel and live according to the gospel. Each of you who know Jesus Christ and have been cleansed by that overwhelming flood, you are sent out as lights in the world where you are. And God delights to do that. He loves to do that. He loves to do that. The resurrection promise in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all that would await people for the future. The gospel tells us that the resurrection matters. The resurrection matters. Without the gospel, all is lost, and you are lost, and I'm lost, and we're lost in our sins. And it's all meaningless. But that is not the case. That is not the case. Christ has come. Christ died. Christ rose. And Christ is now at the right hand of God interceding for us. As he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. If you're here today and you wouldn't say that you're a Christian, I want you to hear those words. Christ has been raised from the dead. There is an answer for your sin. There is an answer for your sin. It's an answer of love from God punctuated by the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus came. Jesus came. He, he lived the life that you can't live. He died the death that you deserve. He lived a life of holiness and he died a death that you deserve. He took on your sin and he bore the wrath of God on the cross. He offered up himself as a sacrifice for your sin. He died and was buried. But on the third day, he rose again. And his resurrection testifies to God's satisfaction with Christ's messianic work on your behalf. And he is delighted in that. And in him, there is forgiveness, there is salvation. And right where you are in your seat, you can come to Jesus. You can repent of your sin and you can come and you can believe in him and trust in him. Before you leave, friend, pray with someone beside you. Experience the gospel. Paul challenged the claim of those among the Corinthians that there was no resurrection. He said, that's not true. But in fact, Christ has been raised. And therefore, because of this, we, Christian, we can rest and rejoice our faith, your faith, your faith, your redemption, your salvation, your eternity and joy with him has been provided and is secured in him. Let's pray together.